Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you're going to learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. And we will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera. And I'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. My guest today is Mr. Joe Dante. And I'm going to tell you a lot more about him in just a moment, but we're excited that he's here and uh, we are live. That means that the chat room is open. And if you're listening live, you can join us in the chat room. All of these interviews record live and are then archived at rexsykes.com. That's me. I'm your host, Rex Sykes. The official website for Rex Sykes Movie Beat is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. And you can listen to those interviews anytime, 24-7, right there from the website at the Interviews blog. They're also stored as podcasts at the iTunes store, so you can get them, download them to your favorite electronic device, take them with you wherever you go, and then you'll never miss another interview. Another conversation with a professional filmmaker. You see, Movie Beat is a resource. It's designed to be a resource for you, and that is why I connect you up with professionals who are making it happen. Now, all we ask of you in return, because these are absolutely free, is that you share these interviews. You can go ahead and repost the URLs. You can tweet while the show is live or archived. You can go ahead and spread the word. Put it on your Facebook wall. Email someone. Phone them. Tell them to listen to these interviews and these conversations. And uh, and that helps us. It helps us uh, immensely because it increases our visibility on the Internet and uh, means that more people can find out about uh, this resource. Now, the other thing I ask you to do is to leave comments either during the show and or after the show. You, again, you can tweet live during the show. You can leave comments at the player. But before you go away today, please take a moment and leave a comment. Now, the caveat is this. It depends on your browser. Uh, sometimes the comment window doesn't show up until after the player is closed. And other times it's just there during the whole thing. So, uh, But your comments are much appreciated, and you can rate and review the podcasts as well. So without any further hesitation, I'm going to introduce my guest, is Mr. Joe Dante. really doesn't need any introduction, but he's a director and began as a trailer editor for Roger Corman's New World Pictures Making, and then made his directorial debut in 1976 with Hollywood Boulevard, which was co-directed with Alan Arkish. Piranha marked his solo directorial debut in 1977, and he went on to, which went on to become one of the company's biggest hits. He edited Ron Howard's directorial debut, Grand Theft Auto, and co-wrote the original story for Rock and Roll High School. Next, he directed The Howling, followed, followed by It's a Good Life segment of The Twilight Zone, the uh, movie. And Spielberg chose Joe to direct Gremlins, which became a runaway hit and grossed more than $200 million worldwide. The sci-fi fantasy Explorers followed, and then Inner Space starring Dennis Quaid and Martin Short. Tom Hanks starred in his next film for Imagine Universal, The Burbs, 
followed by Gremlins to the new batch. And then Joe and his partner, Mike Finnell's company, Renfield Productions, produced Matinee featuring John Goodman for Universal. And then came DreamWorks Universal's Small Soldiers, followed by Looney Tunes Back in Action. Now, among the various episodes of the TV series Joe directed are Amazing Stories, Twilight Zone, Police Squad, Night Visions, Picture Windows, CSI New York, Hawaii Five-O, Showtime's Master of Horrors, and the network pilot for Caleb Carr's The Osiris Chronicles, and NBC's Erie, Indiana. He's won numerous awards, and recently he's directed an interactive new media series, Splatter, starring Corey Feldman and Tony Todd for Netflix, and he's producing the critically acclaimed new media series, Trailers from Hell. So without any, again, without any more hesitation, let me bring on Joe. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Hey, Rex. I'm exhausted listening to all that work. I think I should lie down well, somewhere. You, <laughs> yeah, you should take a rest, but not too long because people want to see what's next. Tell well, you are... You, well, that's very cool. You are prolific. I mean, this this is what a great you know string of of movies to to uh, have made, and um, and so let me ask you how you got started. I mean, you it says you st- you know in your bio it says you started as a trailer editor for Roger Corman, but uh, what did you do to get that job? How did you well, become a trailer editor? I mean, an editor. At, at that particular point in time, uh, Corman was uh, looking for new blood, um, people who, you know, were outside the movie industry, just wanted to make movies, didn't really have a lot of experience, and therefore, you know, didn't have to be paid a great deal. And um, the usual way of people getting ahead in the movie business had been uh, that you got a low-level job and you joined a union and you did the job for a little while and you got you moved your way up and stuff. And so that's why a lot, a lot of editors became directors over a series of years. Um, but this was sort of a crash course version of that because it was all non-union. So therefore, if you did get a job as an editor, um, you had the opportunity to to direct a movie at Corman's. I, I was only there for a year and I was directing a movie. Uh, that's a, that's a it's a wonderful sounding scenario that unfortunately can't happen anymore. <laughs> but at the right. time, uh, I and a lot of my friends got in through this sort of little loophole where the union was opened for a little while to people who had had experience uh, directing stuff for these non-union companies. And um, so within a couple of years after that, I was I, I did two or three features, and then I was able to join the Directors Guild and work for studios. That is very, very cool. Um, now, about that time, this is just a tidbit of history. I think he used to be, I don't know what it was, 8,000, 7,000 sunset. It was a glass buildings on the north side of the street. Yeah, it was, uh, New World Pictures was at the top of a penthouse uh, of a building that is still there, but it's com- been completely remodeled. But what was what was really cool about it was it had these two glass elevators uh, that you could you know, look look through as you right. got up, and you could look out the window and see what was then the classic cat, which was a strip club, which later became Tower uh, Records, which now is gone anyway. Um, that, that whole area, that whole Sunset Strip area, has really undergone a major change from the time of, of the of the 70s. But you got to remember, the 70s. When I first came out here to Hollywood, the 70s were a pretty wide open period. I mean, there were sex yeah. joints everywhere. I mean, all down right. Santa Monica Boulevard, places with, with names like the Institute of Oral Love, you know, and the right. sexual cafeteria. And what the Institute of Oral Love was, was that you would go inside and naked girls would talk to you. <laughs> that was the Institute of Oral Love, but you paid for it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but then, you know, gradually those things went away and uh, the place right, became right. a little more gentrified and uh, and, not, and we have the culture that we have now, which is quite a bit different 
on the one that was rampant in the 70s. It's it's kind of become what Times Square has. I mean, it, it, Times Square became Disneyfied, and and I would say that L.A. has become uh, much the same. Hollywood is certainly cleaned up, and and uh, and has changed. I I actually went into that building one time, took took the elevator up, walked into Corman's rod, not his office, but into the outer office. His secretary was eating. She had a paper plate filled with eggs and bacon. And I said, you know, I want to see Roger Corman. And they actually said, okay. <laughs> Well, it's a very ad hoc place, I, you know. It was very informal, and uh, it, it, looking back, you know, at the time we all felt slightly disgruntled because we weren't making a lot of money, and and the movies weren't, you know, really very highly rated by the outside world. But as we as we look back, um, the experience, I mean, it was actually a wonderful time because we had a tremendous amount of freedom to make these drive-in movies. Um, pretty much any way we wanted, as long as we included the requisite number of you know, bare breasts and violence and whatever it was that they were selling, and uh, so it, it was. It was like a film school, but uh, your movie was going to get released in you know twelve Southern drive-ins when you were done. Well, that's so cool. You know, one of my favorite lines ever, uh, bad joke lines, comes from Hollywood Boulevard, and that was, uh, you know, what kind of car do you have? Oh, a Rolls Canard. Rolls Canardly. It rolls down one hill and can hardly get up the next one. I like that joke right. so much, I recycled it in Explorers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a wonderful one. So, so, um, but that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, we were talking about Dick Miller. Dick Miller talks about the days when he was with Corman where he played an Indian, you know, being chased by a cowboy, and, and he played both parts. So and he shot said, himself. You know, and shot himself, <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that, that was, you know, that was the that was the world of, of those those films. Uh, you know, because of the the consent decree, which you know meant that the studios couldn't own theaters anymore. Uh, in the in the early fifties, this whole world of independent movies opened up, and places like exhibitor owned things, and and places like American International, uh, where they would grind out these pictures uh, very quickly on for double bills uh, for waiting audiences at drive-ins and grindhouses, which were proliferating at the time. Uh, and there was a there was a real market for those kind of pictures for for a number of years. And by the time I came out here in the 70s, there really was a giant a demand for these low budget pictures to fill up the space in the drive-ins and and, and the grindhouses. So so there was actually a, a kind of a mini factory situation that was going on, and, and a lot of people managed to glom onto that and get their chance to make you know their their first movies. Well, we still had double features at that time, as I recall. Yes, I, I certainly lament the loss of the double feature. In fact, when I, I remember when, when I had done Piranha and it opened down uh, on Hollywood Boulevard at the Pix Theater, I couldn't believe oh, that it yeah. wasn't on a double bill. I, I <laughs> To me, this kind of movie was made for double bills. And uh-huh. yet, uh, the, 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 right around that period, they just started giving up on double bills completely. And, uh, and so every little cheap picture had to somehow do double duty. It was like, okay, you paid your money and this is what you're going to get. <laughs> it's this picture <laughs> and, and, and a couple of trailers. And, and, and of course, that's that's pretty much the way it is now, except you get the picture and then and you get um, a lot of Nike ads. But in the old days, you'd get the cartoons and you'd get newsreels right. and you'd get all this stuff. And, and the, the theaters that I used to go to in Philadelphia when I was in college literally didn't they never turned the lights on of these grindhouses people would go in and and uh, that was that was the origin of the expression this is where we came in which people don't uh-huh. even understand anymore now and it was because people used to go to the movies and they'd just show up 
And whatever movie was on, they'd just watch it from whatever point they were, and then they'd watch that. It would be over. Then the new movie would come on. They'd watch that. Then they'd watch the first movie again, and at a certain point, they'd go, ah, this is where we came in, and they'd leave. <laughs> and they would leave, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I happened to watch uh, uh, Killing a Chinese Bookie the other night since Ben Gazzara passed away, and, they, and it was on TV, and I watched it. And the, one, of the, one of the things that, to me, charmed me more than anything else is, for example, and I'm sorry, I'm changing the subject a bit, but they have a shot of, of you know, Gazaris, and then they have shots of the source. They go and sit at the source. And I was sitting, I, w- I was watching this movie trying to pick out backgrounds, um, you know. As well, that's well one of the most fun things to do with movies, especially if you are lucky enough to actually live in the area where they're made, uh, because you can watch a movie and you can, you can see that they're standing on a corner. That, oh, I know where that is. You know, yeah. and and uh, that that I also I also found that to be true when I finally worked at the studios and I got into the back lots and I realized that these were the same right. back lots that Jimmy Cagney was gunning people down and and I and I would watch the old movies and I would realize that where every, the whole topography of where everybody is at every studio makes it really a lot of fun to watch old movies for me because I know exactly where they are. Oh, that's so cool. So, um, how did let's let's ask this? You, you became the trailer editor for Corman and then you you got the opportunity to direct. Um, as a filmmaker, that experience of of, of cutting and or assembling, uh, especially uh, trailers, uh, you know, conventional wisdom says make your movie and, and and then give it to a trailer cutter, not an editor. I mean, not try not to do it yourself. And in today's world with consumer movie making, a lot of people are making their own trailers. Uh, but how did that experience of of uh, making trailers? help you in directing your first movie or subsequent movie? Well, I think you'll find when you look back that a lot of um, uh, directors have started as as editors. And trailer editors have a particular uh, kind of filmic haiku that they have to go through in order to take a 90-minute movie and reduce it to two minutes, two and a half minutes. And one of the things that you learn as you as you start to do that is you know how to deconstruct a scene and how to find the high points of a scene that you can put into the trailer and still make the point. And when you do that, you start to realize certain things like they didn't need this angle. It, it, this scene would work better without this angle. Uh, and, and then when you finally go on the set, you, you, you use that innate knowledge that you've gained and you realize that, you know, how can I stage this so that I don't have to do a, shoot a reverse and relight the set and take the time to do that? Uh, what is the minimal way I can I can make people understand what's going on in this scene and then get out and go to the next scene? Because you know, in those when you start making low budget pictures, time is everything. And the one thing you don't want to do is you don't you want to have less time when the camera's not on. Because <laughs> the only point that that matters is when the camera's on between action and cut. So you try to increase that amount. And one of the ways to do it is to know exactly what you can get away with and what you can't. And so uh, trailer editing uh, is I think a, a terrific. Um, uh, way to get into that uh, that mindset, and uh, but the one thing that I did find is that it, 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 having done a lot of trailers for other people's pictures, when it came time to do trailers from my own picture, uh, I realized the limitations because the, because what you, when you've got somebody else's picture in front of you, you just take out the high points and and you try to make it the best trailer you can make. But when it's your picture, you you have this little voice in the, in your head that goes, "Well, I don't want to give that away." Oh, I don't want to show this because oh, I don't want to have that be in the trailer. And then you you become a spectacularly ineffective editor <laughs> for your own pictures. Right? <laughs> yeah, I would imagine absolutely. And and I and I would say that so many of the trailers that now show up on YouTube for uh, more of the consumer low budget independent films, with all due respect, some of them are 
not that good, you know. And, and well, it's hard to do trailers now because you know I, I'm a fan of the old style trailer with lots of hyperbole and lots of whites uh-huh. and lots of you know uh, um, declamations about how great it's going to be. Um, and of course, that's that's sort of parodied now. That's not that's really an old fashioned way of doing it. But now, but there used to be a, a, a dictum: one man, one trailer. You know, one guy, one guy would make the trailer, and that would be the trailer. But the way it worked when the advertising agencies finally got a hold of it was that they would make lots of trailers, and they would farm the trailer out to different trailer companies. They'd look at all the different cuts, and then they'd combine them into their own version of a trailer. So it's 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 really a, a, a kind of a hit or miss thing. And there's such a familiar um, routine that has to go with trailers now. I mean, the, the late Don LaFontaine used to say, in a world where, you know, right. like as soon as you heard that, you knew that you knew exactly what kind of picture that was going to be. And then the people running away from the fireball shot and, you know, the, the, the things that we just have come to expect uh, are these tremendous cliches. And so to try to make a trailer now with a jaded audience that's seen years and years and years of trailers, often that were promising things that, that didn't happen in the movie, um, it's it's just become a kind of a lost art to me. And every so often, when you see a great trailer, uh, it really stands out. And and you know, if, when you go and look back, uh, people like Stanley Kubrick, you know, supervised their own trailers, and those trailers are really great. And and uh, you know, Preminger and Hitchcock used to merchandise themselves as uh, as auteurs and and appear in the trailers. And DeMille did the same thing. Um, and those are those are really the classic trailers, and that's one of the reasons that I started the the website, Trailers from Hell, which is a great 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 website. I was I was going to mention it too, so I'm, I'm glad that you did. And uh, in the chat room, I have the uh, the uh, the URL, but it, if, if let me go back and look at it, it's just trailersfromhell.com. Dot com. Yeah, it's pretty simple yeah. to find. Right. Um, but, but I had this I, because I, when, I, when I started making trailers, I started collecting them also, and uh, so I had this big 35 millimeter trailer collection, and I was sitting in a vault, and nobody was looking at it, and, and I noticed a strange thing happening that, that that people from my generation who were very conversant with film history, uh, partly because there were so many films on television all the time when we were growing up. I mean, if there was mm-hmm. if there was time to fill, they just they ran an old movie, and, on, uh, and at night, in, in the middle of the night, there would be nothing but movies, movies till dawn or whatever. And right. so you would turn on the TV, and you'd see a piece of a movie you had never seen, you didn't know what it was, but you, you, you sort of could encounter things. Uh, now, of course, uh, when there's, ironically, more films available to see in different formats than there ever have been, there's there's very little attention paid to you know what what the film history really is, and there's a lot of people... Uh, younger people, people under 30, who have no idea about you know some of the great movies uh, oh, of geez, all time. Yeah. And so one of the things that, that we try to do at the site is to sort of curate that and, and point people toward movies that we think that they should know about. And, and maybe you find a director or an actor whose work you like and you want to see more of that. Um, and and there's, just, there's just so few places to go now to do that. I mean, there's one channel on television, Turner Classic Movies, which is in a very right. high-tier um, uh, Format where you know if you want to if you want to get cable TV or satellite TV you usually have to pay extra to get the level that has turned right. across movies is because right. it's considered esoteric. So most people's TVs don't they don't even have the opportunity to like chance upon uh, these old movies, and 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 so you can get them on Netflix and you can get them on streaming and you can get them on DVD, um, but you have to know what to look for. You have to know that these things exist, and that was one of the reasons that we put together. Um, the site where we have about 40, 45 different filmmakers um, talking about 
uh, movies that influence them, movies that they think you should know about, uh, movies that sometimes movies they think you shouldn't know about. Um, but it's really been a lot of fun, and we've gotten some great uh, people, uh, everybody from Guillermo del Toro to John Landis to John Badham and uh, you know Eli Roth, lots of really interesting uh, filmmakers, writers, makeup people, Rick Baker, um, to talk about these movies. And so it's kind of a mini film school. I mean, if you go to the site, you can actually, you know, watch for, you know, different days. We can almost oh, yes. use things up there. In fact, we're, we're celebrating our 700th trailer on the 22nd of February. Oh, very cool. Oh, that's really cool. Well, it, 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 what's great is, it, I mean, it is educational while it's entertaining and, and vice versa. It, I mean, it's an amazing site. And um, you correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed to me that in the in the 70s, growing up in the film world, there was a, a sense of, of of this this as a convention. And that was, if the trailer seems too good to be true, then the movie probably is too good to be true. If you know, if everything well, that was, was certainly the, true with the trailers we made, because we we were <laughs> we were very cavalier about faking things. I mean, we we we, the, we had an exploding helicopter that we liked from a Filipino movie, and so we thought, well, you know, this trailer, this would look good in the trailer for this movie too. And sometimes <laughs> the movies that Roger imported from from overseas were, you know, not really that good. And so we would spice them up a little in the trailer by putting in scenes from other pictures that <laughs> had no counterpoint whatsoever in the movie. But at that point, usually those pictures came and, and went like in a week. And uh, the chances are, by the time people, you know, found out that this stuff wasn't in the uh, in, in the movie, that the movie had moved on. <laughs> Snake oil uh, trailer salesman. I, yeah, it was. Oh. It was kind of like standing in the back of the, uh, <laughs> the snake oil sales with the with the with the bottle, and, you know, elixir. Well, that's that's cool. Well, I I I certainly um, found myself. I don't remember what year it was. I know I was at the Alex in Glendale, and uh, I uh, was sitting with a friend, and he we were watching this tr- movie trailer for whatever film we were about to see, and he goes, "Oh, I want to see that," and I said, "Oh, it's going to be crap." And I said, no, no, I think it's going to be good. And I said, no, it's going to be crap. Look at this trailer. And it was for Indiana Jones, the first one. <laughs> and I mean, I was completely wrong, you know. And but but well, it seemed but, you that know, it, you were probably you were probably responding to the fact that 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 was a a, a takeoff on you know old serials and things that w- would have been considered yeah. somewhat corny uh, by the audience. And that's and and reinventing genre is one of the things that uh, has kept the movies going. Uh, that mm-hmm. sometimes we did that on The Howling. I mean, by the time we did The Howling in 1980, werewolf movies were kind of old hat and they were considered passe and they were something that you'd see on the Late Late Show, but really no, there hadn't really been one of any substance in quite a while. And so we decided to introduce the supernatural element of the movie um, sort of sneakily. We didn't, we didn't have werewolves on the poster. We didn't have werewolves in the trailer. Uh, and the beginning of the movie makes it look like a slasher movie. And gradually... Uh, you discover along with the characters that there's this supernatural werewolf component and it it was sort of brought in sideways to the story so the audience was already invested in the characters by the time they were asked to swallow all this lycanthropic stuff. Um, Uh And it worked very well. And it worked very well. And and, and it it was also self-referential in that the characters in the in the movie, we're aware of the fact that there are werewolf movies existed because we're in, in the older pictures. Usually, there's a scene where the, the the hero and the heroine go in and say, "Tell us, Doctor, what is a werewolf?" And then he explains stuff that usually the audience already knew. Uh, well, that that sort of self consciousness 
sort of caught on and led to the screen movies and movies where people are uh, aware of the cliches and the the um, the fact that all this stuff has been done before. Uh, and it's it's a, it sort of changed the changed changed the way that the, these pictures were approached for a while. You, you, what comment did you? I mean, inside your comment was something that I found intriguing. Actually, was you, and I hope I paraphrase it correctly. You said something to the effect that by the time they got to the lycanthropy stuff, they'd already been invested in the characters, mm-hmm. and. And and so I want to ask you about that. I mean, in, in terms of your approach to story, and in terms of your uh, story construction and characters, and 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 what you what makes a good film? Well, I mean, any film rises and falls on the characters and the story. I mean, you can you can have as much spectacle as you want, but if there's nobody there to react to it, it's just an effects reel. And I think that you can look back on movies from the last five ten years. And there are a lot of movies that exist primarily to show off uh, advances in, in special effects, and then there's occasionally cut to an actor, you know, with a wide-eyed or screaming or something. And but but that's not really what anybody came to see, and so they don't spend any time with that. Whereas the movies that you really care about are the movies that that you're invested in the characters and you want to know what's going to happen to them. Uh, that's that's the main appeal of movies is is that's what keeps it going. It's the appeal of soap operas. It's the appeal of any kind of drama. And the, the, the more you overwhelm it with effects, um, the, the less effective it becomes. Well, that's an excellent, excellent point. I also think that I, I see a lot of young, by young, I, I, when I say young filmmakers, I mean people who are coming into the field, not not their chronological age. But I see a lot of young filmmakers who uh, today, uh, because they've got the technology to shoot, they don't have to go out and buy raw stock. They, you know, it, they can they can afford to make a movie. They can cut it. They can score it. They can do everything inside their home. That um, a lot of them seem to be really, really hung up on the t- the technical side, the shots. You know, I, I've got to do my storyboard. I got to get my shots. I got to get the angles right. Get, you know, but not so good with working with actors. And again, every every generalization has its you know counterexample. But but not so good at working with actors or getting performances or, or dealing with the characters. And and so advice to filmmakers, any any tips or suggestions that you would give. Uh, people in terms of uh, making their films uh, about what they might want to concentrate on and how. Well, you know, it's, it's it, the the impetus to make films comes from a lot of different places, and 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 people have many different influences. Uh, you know, the the when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, it it, it um, galvanized an entire generation of younger people who said that's the kind of movie I want to make because they had such a good time. Uh, uh-huh. My my generation had the same feeling from Forbidden Planet and Ray Harryhausen right. movies and yeah, you know, yeah. pictures that wait these are great we want to make these kind of things uh, which got which is what got you Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark because those guys uh-huh. are making movies based on things that they loved when they were younger um, but the question becomes what what is the influence what are people seeing what are what are young people are young people seeing Transformers and saying I want that's what I want to do with my life I want to make Transformers movies I mean probably and mm-hmm. that is going to ultimately probably lead to more movies like that, uh, where spectacle is everything. And, uh, you know, that, that, that started to happen in the 70s with, with Jaws and, and Star Wars, uh, where spectacle, the spectacle was, you know, amazing and different and had never been seen before, and that's one of the reasons people went to the movies. And now, of course, with all the technical advances that we've got, anything you can literally think of, if you have enough money, you can make it happen on the screen. 
Um, but the problem with that is that there still needs to be a reason to tell the story. What is the story? You know, is, is it just about exploding planets, or is there are there people on those planets, and are they going to go somewhere? And and what are their problems, and what's stopping them, and what 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 do they have to overcome? I mean, these are all the basic tenets of storytelling, and sometimes they tend to get a little lost on the way. So you know, obviously, if you can write a good script with good characters, um, but most people who want to direct don't don't want to start by writing; they want to start by just doing. They want to start by staging. They want to start by cutting. They want to start by wowing people with the way that they can move the camera and all that kind of stuff, all of which is great and, and extremely important in, in the difference between movies and, and plays. But at the bottom line is that there's got to be something more to keep you interested than just the spectacle. And uh, I, 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 the only recommendation I would have, because it's so far out of my purview now, but the business is so completely different than the one that I got into years ago, Um is if you if you can manage to uh, put together a project that try to do something simple, try to do a, a story about your own life or something that you know or something that happened to you or a person in your family or something that you can do from the heart, and that will come through. And it, even if it doesn't have a lot of exploding motorcycles in it, it it's still um, you have a chance of making something that touches people. And that's really ultimately, I think, what what people want to do they want to be moved in some way when they go to the movies well, that's an excellent excellent uh, answer i appreciate that very much what uh, but uh, if i could follow that up what do you what do you think just for the actors and for working directors and actors uh, what do you what is important to you uh, in an actor's performance or or in assisting well, it actually boils down to casting uh if you can cast the movie correctly uh, you've done 80% of the job because that's what people look at. That, that those people are those people are your movie. They they have to carry it. They're, they're the ones who are going to get the brickbats if the movie doesn't work. They're the ones who are going to get the praise if the movie does work uh, because that's the window into the into the into the movie. So um, as there are many different ways of working with actors and many different kinds of actors, and and that's that's something that you encounter as you you know as you go on, and obviously you know staging a little play or, or, or something and, and, and going to acting school or classes or something is, is very helpful because you learn a lot. Um, but I think that the, the most important thing is to be able to know who your characters are and find people who embody them uh, and are interesting. And, and this doesn't necessarily mean you go through the book and find you know famous names. I mean, you can do that with just a group of people that you know. Um, and if there, if there are people who are somewhat like the type that you've written, then all the better. You know, it'll be easier and more natural for them to play it. Again, an, an excellent, excellent answer. Um, let's turn back just a, a, a bit. Um, people want to know, you know, about the movies that you've made, and um, and and about the actors. And, and one question from the ch- from uh, the chat was uh, how were you able to get such classic character actors like Keenan Wynn and Richard Deacon and John Carradine and Slim Pickens in your early films? Well, that was uh, that was one of the reasons I wanted to make movies is I, I wanted to work with people that I had grown up watching. And um, mm-hmm. there's one thing that you get from these kind of seasoned pros, and that is total professionalism. I mean, these are people who have been doing it for a long time. They know their lines. They know how to. They know how to act. They know. They they have a sense of where to move, uh, because they've done it a lot of times. I'm, I'm, I, I had Bradford Dolman as the lead in Piranha, and um, uh, 
uh, a lot of the casting choices in those days were made off uh, a, a system called the TVQ rating, right. which was how well-known are these people to people who watch television, because that's ultimately where the movie's going to end up, no matter how well it does theatrically. And uh, you, could get, you could get money and better investments or whatever from a company if you had certain names. And Bradford Dolman at the time was one of those names. And uh, it was such a help to me, because this was a, a fairly broad undertaking. I mean, it was a cheap movie, but it had a lot of special effects. It had water, it had dogs, it had kids, it had all the things you're not supposed to have all together in one movie. And, and no money. Uh, but Bradford was so professional that, uh, you know, I, when I made my first picture, Hollywood Boulevard, we had two directors, and it was very chaotic, and it was a kind of a cartoon. Uh, but this was now, this was a movie that had characters in it, and it was written by John Sayles, and it was obviously something that you know it had to work as a story. And I didn't realize until later, because I was so busy doing the movie, that that Brad had had learned all of those things about when to pick up the coffee cup and when how many puffs to take on the cigarette, and when to take your glasses off, and and he would do it the same way every time. I mean, he was a complete professional, and I don't know that I appreciated it until I got into the editing room. Right, uh, you know, because it was just one of those things where, my God, he's just he he. I can cut, I can cut him perfectly, you know, because he's he's matching every time he does stuff, and that's usually something that script supervisor, uh, her job is to say, now don't forget to take your glasses off there. Um, but on a on a on a chaotic new world movie, you really didn't have that. You just had to move and shoot, get the shot, and move to the next shot. And by using people like Brad, and it's my first picture with Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and and it, it it was then and Keenan Wynn who was working for one day because that was an, another way that you sort of would get an extra name value is you bring in a guy uh, that you pay some money to that has a recognizable name and he works for one day and then he leaves. Well, Keenan came in and he he really seemed to want to get an extra day out of it and he just kept saying, "Geez, I I don't know. I, I hope I don't forget my lines <laughs> and have to work for another day." But Keenan was also deaf, and and because uh, he used to ride motorcycles, and um, he he really couldn't. He had the, the tinnitus, I think they call it, or tinnitus, where there's a ringing in your ears all the time. Right. And so he would he would, if I was directing him from far away, he'd yell, "You better say it loud because I'm not going to hear it." Um, but he, he was great. I mean, he was a great guy, and uh, he we, unfortunately didn't get an extra day, so I think he got a little disgruntled. But. But all those kind of guys, Slim Pickens and, and, and all those people that I worked with uh, who were, you know, people that I watched growing up, or they were just totally great to work with. And, and uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pleasure. Has it changed? I mean, is there is there a pronounced difference between how people approached uh, the business and the craft 30 years ago, 40 years ago, as to how they approach it nowadays? I don't think so. I think acting styles changed but i think that the, the the same thing holds true that if you if you get a veteran actor who's been in a lot of work um they they bring the same qualities to the set as as, as the actors of the old days you know it, it's just a a matter of dedication and talent and and believe me you can't stay in this business if you're not dedicated and talented good point excellent point um regarding piranha um uh, there have been a lot of Piranha movies since, and, and someone wants to know how you feel about Piranha 3D and, and other variations. Well, I was hardly going to be in a position to say that I was objecting to Piranha 3D when 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 Piranha was a ripoff of Jaws. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've ripped off somebody else's movie. I certainly can understand somebody wanting to do the same thing to mine. 
And uh, there were actually many attempts over the years to make um, uh, another Piranha movie. That, you know, Jim Cameron made Piranha 2, but that was for a kind of a sleazy Italian producer who didn't really treat him very well. Um, but uh, over the years, they, uh, the, 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 the Dutch producer, Shaco van Leeuwen, kept trying to set up a, a remake of Piranha over the years. And it was, it was just sort of a joke to me. Every time I would read about it, I'd go, well, that's not going to happen. Um, but this, this time it did. And, uh, you know, Alexander Aha, the, the, the French director, uh, wanted wanted to do it. And, and uh, they he wanted to do it in 3D, which, unfortunately, they couldn't shoot in 3D because it was uh, shot digitally and it was on the water and the sun. And there's a lot of reasons why it's difficult to do 3D um, out, digital stuff out in the middle of Lake Havasu or wherever they shot it. And so they they did that part of it later, but um, you know it was certainly in the spirit of the same of the of the movie. It's just that it shows you how much times have changed. I mean, in in 1978, Piranha was criticized as extremely gory and bad taste, which it probably was. And uh, and of course, this one it w- is even worse taste, <laughs> even gorier, which is that's the whole reason. I mean, you're gonna make a Piranha movie. I mean, you got to expect piranhas to eat people. <laughs> Very good. Um, the uh, somebody just made the comment uh, a, a while back that, they, that we were talking about our friend Dick Miller. That 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 uh, this person said, "I look forward to Dick Miller's cameos in Joe's films, as I look for the See You Next Wednesday in the Landis movies." <laughs> well, John has been has been using that gag for God since uh, what was the first time he used it? Uh, probably in Schlock, I would think. Wow, wow! And it's a line from a picture. It's a line from yeah. 2001, I think. That's pretty. It's it's pretty cool. Well, um, uh, going with Dick. I mean, and and being in Piranha, and then he was he's been in so many of your movies. Uh, one is Gremlins, and Spielberg um, brought you in for Gremlins. Now, did had, when when you started discussing the movie with, with Stephen, did did Piranhas ever come up as a ripoff of Jaws? Uh, you know, oddly enough, I, I don't think we ever talked about it. But I did find out later that he had um, prevented the movie from being uh, enjoined from release by Universal, who was less than thrilled that Roger Corman had a uh, cheap version of uh, Jaws coming out opposite Jaws 2, which is their cheap cheap version of Jaws. And uh, and so they were thinking of trying to get an injunction to keep it from being released. And uh, the story I heard was that Stephen... Uh, looked at it and said, "You guys don't get it. This is a parody. This is not a copy." So, uh, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for Stephen, I might not have had my picture released at all. <laughs> so, how did that? How did? But that's very cool. But how did? How did the? Uh, how did you get involved to do uh, Gremlins? How did that? Well, actually, involved? Gremlins came out of the woodwork. I was um, in my cockroach-infested office on El Centro Avenue, uh, and which had formerly been a New World cutting room. But then when they uh-huh. uh, when they left, I we well. kept the office. A couple of friends of mine and I. And uh, this script arrived from Spielberg, and I assumed it was a mistake. I must have gone to the wrong address, and it was the script for Gremlins, which had been written as a writing sample by Chris Columbus. And Spielberg wanted to start a, his own company, Amblin. And his first picture, uh, he thought it would be good to do a low-budget horror film. And so, having seen The Howling, apparently, because uh, he cast D. Wallace in E.T. from seeing The Howling, um, he uh, sent this script to me. And so, while I was working on, uh, had the meeting with him, and while I was doing storyboards and seeing if this was indeed something that he was going to want me to do, uh, the Twilight Zone movie came up. 
and uh, uh-huh. at lunch uh, with him and John Landis, um, they said, "Well, why don't you do an episode?" The, maybe it was sort of like a test, you know, to see if he can, if I could really do, if I could really do Grandma. Um, and uh, then George Miller uh, came into a, Stephen's office one day for, just to say hello, and he landed an episode. So George and I ended up being the sort of two neophyte directors, along with Landis and Spielberg, to direct the Twilight Zone movie. And all the while that was going on, I was, you know, preparing um, to do Grumbles. Wow. So let's then do the backtrack. I, I hate to jump you around like this, but let's let's go back to that Twilight episode. That, that you directed and you evolved into that, and then and well, I I wanted to I, I thought it was a wonderful idea to do a Twilight Zone movie, but I didn't think it was a good idea to do old episodes over again. I thought that they should do you know new stories like the show did, and uh, they were all they all came from you know literary sources and you know Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and, and those kind of stories. Um, but for whatever reason, Warner Brothers said they want they really wanted to do the old stories, and so I. Um, was a little flummoxed by that, but I, I did. I had been very fond of an episode um, that James Sheldon directed um, about a, uh, a kid who uh, keeps his um, entire town uh, at bay with his mind and mm-hmm. uh, wishes people into the cornfield if they displease him. Right. And, right, and it was uh, it, it was one of the best episodes, and it was um, and best remembered episode, and it was based on a story by Jerome Bixby, uh-huh. uh, which ha- which was a somewhat different, obviously that had to be changed for the TV. And I thought, well, maybe if I can go back to the story and change it around a little, then maybe people won't really get which episode this is a remake of until, you know, they're halfway through it and they're invested in it. And so that's what we did. And, and Richard Matheson came on as the writer. And Richard was, a, uh, it was and is a, 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 a terrific writer who uh, has written many classics. Uh, at the first one of his I saw was The Incredible Shrinking Man, but I had I had been reading his his short stories for years. And uh, we worked together on a different take on this story and uh, came up with the idea that the kid is a, a cartoon fanatic who keeps a surrogate family of people that he's just sort of captured uh, in this world where they have to cater to his every whim. And uh, it was it was a rather odd approach. And uh, it, it, the art direction and the choice of what we did with it were kind of offbeat. Uh, but um, in the end, it turned out that uh, George's episode, which was a remake of the Man on the Wing episode with William Shatner, um, and I and mine got the best response, uh, and the two, you know, bigger directors right. got less good response. And so it was great for us because we it really sort of put us on the map. And it was also my first studio, first time ever working in a studio. I remember. Uh, I was up on the I was up on the top of the set looking down and on this big sound stage and this grip came up to me and he said, you see that corner over there? I said, Yeah, he said, Earl Flynn pissed in that corner. <laughs> and uh, apparently this was the stage where they shot the sea wolf. And there was a big the, underground I'm sorry, shot the what? The sea wolf. Oh, the sea wolf, uh huh. And there was a big underground uh tank there. And I thought, Boy, you know, I've really arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, um, actually, um, let me take the break right now. We're at that halfway point, but let me take the break, and then uh, we'll come back. I, sh- I sure am enjoying this, as are people in the chat room. And let me uh, uh, just take a moment, Joe, and we'll be right back. Okay. 
All right, thank you. You're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official website is rexsikes.com. All these interviews are recorded live and are archived right there. They're also available at iTunes. Please leave comments before you leave listening to the show, whether it's archived or live. Uh, you can go ahead and leave a comment at the player, and you can rate and review the podcast. You're listening to Mr. Joe Dante. Uh, he's talking about movies and directing, and uh, one of his websites is trailersfromhell.com. It is trailers from hell.com and you owe it to yourself to go and check that site out my next guest coming up on friday will be director peter marshall he's part of doing our director series we're now at part 16 so you're going to listen to that we've been talking about actor performances and, and shooting tips and things along those lines so uh, be sure to come and listen to peter marshall uh, on friday that will be at the regular time 11 a.m uh, eastern 10 a.m central and 8 a.m pacific um, then we're going to take a hiatus. We're going to be gone for a couple of, of weeks, so you have to go back and listen to all the archive shows to get your fix and and and, uh, and go back and catch uh, discussions that you've not yet heard. And uh, and then we'll be back in March. And when we come back on the 1st of March, we'll be with Billy Garson. He's uh, Mozzie on uh, the uh, White Collar with uh i can't i can't remember i'm sorry but he plays mozzie on white collar on the usa network and you're going to want to check it in jeffrey winter from massacre at central high will be joining us uh on the sixth and we've got cheeks who is uh, brad bell who stars in the series husbands the web series jeff greenstein uh director talked about it yesterday and uh, Jane Espenson uh, has written. And Patrick Breen will be joining us, among others. So please uh, stay tuned to Rex Ike's Movie Beat uh, while we're away, and then join us live again in March. Now, back with Mr. Joe Dante. Uh, what was that like? I mean, you you uh, were editing, you were working for Roger, you were on El Centro, uh, you know, you, you, you went and made Piranha in... Well, he was in Texas, right, mm-hmm. and on location, and um, and now you're at Universal Studio, and you and you said I, the feeling that I have arrived. How, how how did it differ, especially back in the '70s, um, from a Corman flick to a studio flick? Well, what I what I actually did was I went from uh, Corman to Universal for a movie that didn't happen called Jaws Three People Zero, <laughs> uh, which was a National Lampoon. Uh, Universal co-production and was going to be produced by Dave Brown and Richard Zanuck and this guy, Matty Simmons, who was running the um, National Lampoon magazine at the time. And uh, it was my first studio experience uh, and I um, I went to my first meeting and I was handed my storyboards. And I, <laughs> I said, what are these? They said, well, these are your storyboards. And I, uh, I'd never seen them before. They're all eye-level shots. They're all kind of, you know, kind of the least interesting way of shooting, whatever it was. And uh, I realized that this that I was indeed going to be a cog in a rather large machine. And uh, the only reason that they didn't make the movie was because the Zanuck and Brown people wanted to make a PG and the National Lampoon people wanted to make an R. And uh, there, was the, there was a lot of tension about, you know, who was, whose version, whose vision of this movie was going to be made. It certainly wasn't going to be mine. Um, and then while that was going on, uh, a, a director fell out on, a, on The Howling, and uh, my friend Mike Fennell was the producer, and he called me and he said, would you like to come in and replace uh, this uh, this guy? And uh, and I looked at the script and I said, well, um, 
only if we can rewrite the script. And uh, so that we, we, we hired a guy named Terry Winkless, who I knew, and he did a good pass at trying to fix the script. And then we hired John Sales, and he did another pass. And we made a, a pretty successful picture out of it, a much more successful probably than Jaws 3 People Zero would have been. <laughs> the title itself is a, is, is truly a winner. <laughs> you do know what Jaws is when you about when you run it in reverse, don't you? I forget who's who, who's who's lying. Huh? Swadge. He says no. It's a story about a shark swimming around, throwing up people until they open a beach. <laughs> no, I was not aware of that. But yeah. I'm sure there's a 3D version of it coming out soon. Yeah. <laughs> Probably true. Well, someone in the chat room, you get a lot of big fans in the chat room who one one person says they didn't watch anything that was not animated until they saw your movies. And, uh, and oh, that's interesting these... because, you know, I felt the same way when I was a kid. I would go to the movies and I would stay for the ten cartoons. And then when the movie came on, I'd leave. <laughs> and it was only one day that I stayed and it was it came from outer space in 3D. Oh, geez. And I, and I realized that movies with people in them could be interesting. It could be. Wow. <laughs> it's very interesting that this guy feels the same way. <laughs> Well, you're hitting those hot-button movies, too. It came from outer space and Forbidden Planet. I mean, Well, I'm old enough to have seen these pictures when they were new. When they came out, right. The Forbidden yeah. Planet, you know, the, 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 the gimmick with that was that you had to buy Quaker's Oats uh, to get the box tops to be able to get in for free. And so it was great being able to get in to see, you know, Forbidden Planet. But the bad part was that <laughs> for the next six weeks I'd eat that horrible Quaker's Oats. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's funny. <laughs> but there are there. I mean, the people are saying, you know, I watched, you know, I watched Rail Rock, I watched Jim Henson, I watched cartoons, and they said that's why you were born to direct Looney Tunes back in action, which they love. They're thrilled with that. And and some gentleman said, I didn't, I was not afraid at all at Jaws, but Piranha terrified me. So you you have you have. Um, well, there you are. You. Yeah. It's obviously, little teeth are scarier than big teeth. <laughs> or lots of little teeth, baby. <laughs> Um, so uh, again, going back when you when you talk about you know somebody offered me a movie and, and I said well we got to fix the script. What criteria do you use, use when assessing a script? I know they're all going to be different depending on screenplays, but do you have a kind of well, a, a my philosophy? criteria has never changed. It's been uh, would I go see this picture if I hadn't directed it? Mm-hmm. And if I if the answer is no, I wouldn't go see it. Then I then I can't do it. Um, I, I have to have I have to be invested enough to want to turn it into something that I would want to see, and that's that's been my criteria up to now. And if we could expand on that just a little bit, what are those things that you like to see? I mean, well, definable, you know. I mean, I, I, the 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 when you go to these festivals, uh, you know, they they run your your movies, and sometimes you actually are forced right. to sit through them. And um, you know you do you do see certain similarities. I mean, it, there's it's not like anybody starts their career and says I know exactly where I'm going, and the kind of movies I want to make and what I want to say, uh, because opportunities change and, and different you're, you, different things are, are available and sometimes not. So you make the best out of what you what you get, and, and you really can only make the movies they let you make because you know we don't make these movies ourselves. Um, so you know when you look back, you see well there is a uh, there, there's a, a lot of things that are similar in these movies. A lot of them have kids in them. Uh, a lot of them have people watching screens. A lot of them have, you know, there are things where your 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 personality sort of 
puts stuff in there that wasn't there before or interprets it in a way that maybe some other director wouldn't. I've always thought one of the interesting things that you could do for a movie is you could take one half-an-hour story and one 30-page script and give it to three different directors and three different production companies and then put the result all together in one movie. And I'll bet you those movies would be so different from each other that you would sometimes and I maybe even wonder if it started out as the same script. Wow, I, I would that would be uh, that would be uh, an experience worth having. I think I, yeah, I just in the same way that I think that the Academy Awards, if you had all the same, if the same movie by different makers were being judged, yeah, um, yeah. I think you know, you'd, be, you'd be able to make a comparison a little bit easier. Um, wow, that, that is truly truly fascinating. Um, do you think uh, there's it seems like there was the you know the golden age of Hollywood you know coming off of the silent the silent you know the silent days and into the 30s and the 40s and then that kind of darker uh, 50s noir end of post-war 50s and then the 60s and the 70s and 80s the 90s kind of you know where you came up or you know, where my age group is um, between that and what's happened today that is kind of sandwiched in between. Um, these two kind of prominent things, whatever's going on now, and and, and the, the kind of the studio system, um, is is that is the is that I'm trying to articulate this question? It was. Do you think that the '70s and the '80s is kind of an anomaly in our film history? I mean, with the, the Grindhouse movie and the. I mean, some people look back on the '70s with such endearment about the great movies that were made during the '70s. I well, growing. You know, we always some people say we. we some people say we get the movies we deserve, uh, and um, you know it, you can't you can't look back on, on the history of film without connecting it to what was going on in, in the country and in the world, and uh, that's why you get the, the the bleak post-war film noirs where people come back from the war and the society has let them down. Uh, then there's the 50s when everybody thought the future was going to be so great, and uh, you know we were we were on top of the world technologically, but but there was a lot of repressed stuff going on, sort of hidden in the background. You get the Douglas Sirk movies. Um, and then, the, you know, the 60s and the 70s. But the 70s was really a unique period because, uh, for one thing, the studios were very confused. They didn't, after Easy Rider came out, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how, where these movies were coming from or who was going to make them. And uh, so, they're, even, although they'd, they'd had it pretty good in the 60s with the, you know, the, the, the James Bond kind of pictures and the... Right. Uh, the Sergio Leone pictures and you know reinventing genres and making them a little tougher and a little more cynical and the spy movies and all that uh, and the tension that was always going on between the East and the West. But in the in the 70s when when the um, the rating system came in, which had now you know but it, it had always been uh, sort of expected that local censor boards would cut various versions of different movies, and then finally when the rating system came in, that that sort of all went away and there was one centralized place. And you could do a whole show on, on the evils and the good things about the rating system. But one thing that it did do is it opened up the screen uh, to images that you know just weren't allowed before. And it, it was there was a wide-open, freewheeling feeling to the pictures of the 70s, not just the good ones, not just the ones that were about the issues, but the, the exploitation pictures, um, that things were done in the 70s that could never have been repeated in the, in, in the mid-'80s after the Reagan administration came in. And so sometimes when you look back at some of the movies from the 70s, it, it, they are actually shocking to see today. Because, and they were accepted widely of, of uh, it, it, the, 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 the language, the, the images, right. the violence, 
were that was just normal. That was what you got when you went to the movies. Um, but then that sort of went away when the 80s came in and then it got a little more repressed. And, and now with, you know, political correctness and don't say, just say no and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you come back and look at some of the 70s movies and they really are mind-blowing, which which we have a lot of on the, on the Trails from Hell site. Trailers from Hell, right. Well, the, the thing, I mean, I always thought, you know, wow, let's go see an R movie because you would see all these things. And if I were going to make a movie, I'd go, I want to make an R-rated movie. I don't want to make a a PG movie. I mean, that would be for kids. Well, so, but unfortunately, tech, the, the R-rated movies in today's society are not as uh, successful because the median age of the audience is younger now. And, well, and, and, oh, go ahead. That was, no, that go was ahead. My next, well, that was my next question. Do you think it's the corporatization of filmmaking that has driven some of that? And that's why why now PG-13 kind of gets, it doesn't get as, I mean, it's not as raw as the R movies of the 70s, but but they push the boundaries. Of, they have to, yeah, because they want to you know. make they want to get that crucial audience in. And uh, yes, of course, it's, it, it, movies like everything else have become uh, corporatized to a point where um, there are less movies made. Mo- most movies that are, are made are either very very inexpensive or very expensive because they want to be tent poles. But the the kind of the mid range movie that I grew up with and and certainly that you're talking about in the early 70s, the Bob Rafelson pictures and things like that, right. um, those pictures just don't get made anymore, except as indies. And uh, the indie market you know, kind of fell apart when the studios noticed that it was doing well, and then they bought up the companies, and then they <laughs> discovered they weren't really very good at it, and they didn't make enough money, and so they, they dumped them all. And so now there's not that many indie companies left. And uh, the majority of indie movies today are about dysfunctional families. Uh, and and yep. they, they, there's a certain sameness to them. Um, you, no, go ahead. I don't mean to no, no, I, I was just going to ask you: what, Do you see much of a future in indie film again? Do you think that tide will turn, or you think we've kind of, you know, we're already upstream from where? where it also appears that there's, you know, limited channels for distribution. So, I mean, a, a lot of there, there seems to be a lot of the business side of it, you know, preventing. You know, indie movie making from well, the business model that we have now is outdated, and uh, the studios know that, but they don't know what's coming, and so they're they're very concerned, and there's a certain amount of fear um, about the fact that the audience is dwindling because uh, kids have a lot of other options besides going to the movies, and for instance, the whole 3D phase, you know, they 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 embraced it because they knew that they're going to be able to put a surcharge on the tickets. And charge more money, and that worked for a while. But the combination of movies that were not shot in 3D and turned into 3D and didn't look so good, and the fact that there's the kids don't have that much discretionary income as they did, uh, in a lot of cases they just don't go to the 3D version of the movie. They go to the 2D version of the movie because it's cheaper. And so that cash cow is kind of, you know, disappearing. I think the the 3D uh, Titanic and the 3D reissue of the Star Wars movie will probably do okay. But why Lucas would pick the worst Star Wars movie to turn into 3D and, and, and not the first one is is astonishing to me. I mean, he's got it in his head that this is a series that's supposed to be chronological, and so now he's that's, he's starting with number one. Right. But nobody liked that movie. <laughs> and so why wouldn't he do the original Star Wars, which is the one that everybody likes? I, I just don't understand that thinking. When, when I was a teenager and a young actor-filmmaker in Hollywood, um, I made it a point to say I would never exit a theater when the movie was going, uh, that I would sit through no matter how bad or atrocious it was because I figured I would learn something 
from why it didn't work. No, I used and, to do that too. I used to I used to think that when I was when I was in my raging film buff period, I uh, would not walk out of any movie. And I used to review <laughs> movies for for a yeah. trade magazine in Philadelphia, and so I would I I couldn't leave, but. Uh, I would always figure there'd be something, there'd be a good shot, there'll be yeah. a good music score, there'll be a good performance, there'll be something. And then one day, John Landis and I were sitting at the in the Pacific Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, sure. watching a movie called Swamp Thing. Yeah. And the movie started, and the Swamp Thing came out, and it was a guy in a canvas Swamp Thing suit, <laughs> where his crotch hung down to his ankles, and it didn't fit. And he was sort of lumbering around after Adrian Barbeau. And uh, I mean, you could say this with the Adrian Barbeau picture, yeah. Yeah, and 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 we turned to each other and we just said, "Life is too short," and we left. And ever since then, I have had no qualms about walking out on a movie. It's it, it's it's a spooky thing. I I walked out. The the SAG Film Society had screenings for the Academy Awards, or or there were Academy screenings, and it, it was a Middle Eastern picture, but the. They had confused whatever they did. The, the sound in the picture was off by a, a reel or something. I mean, it was just really. <laughs> That's not good. It made it made no sense whatsoever. I mean, somebody would drive up and they'd get in the car, and five minutes later they'd say, "Get in," and they were no. That's, that's bad. And, and I, I walked out of that. Possible. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, but I walked out of that movie. But it was when television. I, I I have not ever been able to get through the Phantom Menace. I can't. I just. I mean, there's just movies. You know that I turned. Well, I, I, I stuck with it to see Christopher Lee, but it, it's really not uh, not high on my list of pictures I ever want to see again. Wow. So speaking of 3D, everybody wants to know about the hole. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> I made this movie well, I, I, like at least three years ago, uh, and uh, when we started it, we checked out all the competing movies that were coming out in 3D to make sure there would be enough theaters and, and all that. And I, I basically convinced the producers to make the picture in 3D because I thought it would be enhanced. And so we made the movie, and then by the time it was finished, um, we hadn't realized that there was going to be a glut of fake 3D movies, movies that were not shot in 3D, but then they, they suddenly decided, oh, well, put them through the computer and we could charge more money. And, uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland and The Clash of the Titans and all these things came out, and they were flooding the screens, and there was no place for our little you know, low-budget horror picture, basically. Um, and so it didn't come out. It came out in Europe. It came out in uh, England. It came out in Italy and Spain and, I think, Russia and some places. And it's on, you can get it on DVD from Singapore. <laughs> I guess you get everything on DVD from Singapore. Um, but it never came out here. It never yeah. came out here. And it never came out in Canada, where we shot most of it. Uh, and no one has been able to explain to me why. I have not been able to wow. get the producers to explain to me why this movie has not been released. And um, as far as I know, it'll never be released. And I have no clue why that is. If anybody situation. wants to investigate, they can call the offices of Bold Films in Hollywood and ask them. Well, because well, uh, somebody had emailed me, and I, and I forget who it was, but they said, I've got to ask you about, you know, you must ask Joe about the whole. They went to the premiere in Toronto in 2009, mm -hmm. and they were. Do you um, is that a situation where you said that they can get it from Singapore? Is that a is that a licensed copy or is that a pirated copy? No, or? there actually are uh, real DVDs in anaglyphic 3D, which is not very good 3D, but um, that you can get from overseas. I think Britain, I think you can get one from Britain. Uh, and there's a, there's an Italian version that has some other kind of 3D, which I think is uh, shutter sequential, where you if you have a 3D TV, I think you you stick this thing in and it, it runs with 
glasses that I guess you already have. I don't know. I, I, I'm not that big on 3D TV, but um, but it was very good 3D, and we won a we won an award in Venice as best their first award they ever gave for best 3D uh, oh, wow. movie. And it's and 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 it's not a bad picture. People like it, but um, you know, it just it's. I think it and, and all, that brings me to another thing because it was shot digitally, which is a better 3D system than the old movie system because the, the film weaves in the projector and weaves in the camera and, and this is rock steady so it's much easier on your eyes. Uh, the problem with digital is that as a as an archival medium, it's it's the jury is really out and um, a lot of movies are being made in um, digital and not never being turned into film, never being no negative is made to, to can be captured. Wow. Film is really the only safe way to store and preserve movies and so I think that we're going to find that a great deal of movies uh, made during the past five years in digital are going to be in trouble when the, when everything changes, as it always does. Right. I, I remember I did a picture called Runaway Daughters for Showtime, and it was part of a series of, of uh, called Rebel Highway. It was remakes of old AIP juvenile delinquency movies. And we shot it on film. We cut it on, on video. And then I asked the producers, I said, so you guys going to cut the negative? And they said, no. And I said, well, why not? They said, well, what, why, why bother? We've already got it. Got a nice video copy, and uh, that's what we're going to use. And I said, but you know, it, it, it's on, it's on what's now called a D1. And the reason it's called a D1 is because there's going to be a D2, a D3, and a D4, and eventually that's going to go away and be replaced by something else. Which of course, you know, now we have Blu-ray and all these other you know things. Uh, right. And then late, a couple of years later, they went back and they said, well, now we want to put it out on DVD. And I said, well, okay, but it's not going to look very good because you've only got this D1 master, which you have to bump up now um, to put it out on, on, on DVD. And so every show in that series, so there were there were like 10 or 12 of them, and they're all by reputable directors. I think they're going to be lost films in another five years. Because wow, there's, that just is, no, there's no preservation. Wow, that is truly, that is truly tragic. I mean, it is. And when you combine that with the fact that uh, the theaters have now all got digital, and that a lot of the movie studios don't want to release 3D or 35 millimeter prints anymore because it's too expensive. Um, and I think at least one of them has announced that by 2013 they're absolutely not making any more prints. Um, the, the the problem for repertory theaters and uh, film festivals is going to be that you're not going to be able to get 35 millimeter prints of movies of old movies, and there's no real incentive for the studios to make digital versions of them because you know how many theaters are they going to play not many uh, right. so the whole idea of uh, you know going to uh, revival theaters and and at the museum or the, the cine family or the new beverly or whatever i mean the, the new beverly actually has a petition that you can sign um to try to save try to talk the studios into saving 35 millimeter and at least making uh, enough copies for people to be able to see the old movies um it's it's uh, it's it's really going away and uh, i think that's a shame. It, it truly, truly is a shame. I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of some comics from the '30s, a, a, a team called Wheeler and Wolsey, and I've been enamored with them since I was 10 or 11 years old. And fortunately, Turner Classic Movies, you know, has in in previous years, you know, probably showed most of them. And prior to that, when before we had cable, you could catch them on late night and stuff like that. And so I would, as a kid, audio record them and then, you know, DVD them or, or originally VHS them and stuff like that. But but I've always, I've always went, you know, someday, you know, all these DVDs are going to warp or someday all the... All the, the yeah, VHS they, well, LaserDisc has already, 
Laserdiscs have already proven that you can't save things in Laserdiscs because they have laser rot. You know, and yeah. a lot of the Laserdiscs that you go back to, you just can't play. They either skip to the beginning again or they just, you know, turn into little squares. Um, that's why I started, when I started collecting films, I started collecting in 16 millimeter in the 70s. And uh-huh. there were lots and lots of prints of pictures from the army and from from television and nursing homes or whatever that, that were on, on sale and that you could buy legally. And um, the problem, <laughs> and I have a lot of pictures on 16 that I don't think will probably ever come out legitimately uh, on, uh, on video. But the problem is that they don't make the projectors anymore. Well, that, yes, exactly, and the and then the other thing is what you said before about the you know cost incentive or the profit incentive to to not make these things, and I mean how much is is being lost? I look at what happened to AMC, which went from being you know kind of like what Trigger Classic Movies was to, I mean you know as as we proceed the decades, we we see fewer and fewer of the earlier films. Even well, but that's, no, that's only natural because you know well, the audience is dying. <laughs> I, I, I remember saying true, to somebody in, in Warner Home Video a couple of years ago, I said, if you, if I were you guys, I would try to put out every black and white movie you own in the next ten years because the audience for them is going to be completely gone. And uh, now they have a thing called Warner Archive, which is uh, it's a burn-on-demand system where you can you order something and they 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 burn it and send it to you. And it's much cheaper for them to than, than mass producing it. And because of that, thousands, not, well, not thousands, but at least hundreds of uh, movies from their libraries, and, they, and Warner Brothers owns more movies than anybody because they own so right. many different libraries, uh, are now available uh, for people to see. And I think that's that's terrific. But again, right. it, that's a small, pretty small, hardcore group of people who know what these movies are and who these actors are. And uh, they even have silence. And you know, the, the number of people who are really interested in silent movies is quite small. Do you think that I mean I I I sat in the artist and 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 I wept and not because of the story I was so enamored with the fact that here in 2012 I was sitting in a silent movie uh you know watching a black and white thing with with an audience that actually sat through the credits and applauded when the movie was done and I was like wow I mean I I just couldn't well, any movie that gets people to watch black and white is okay with me. <laughs> but, you know, in England, uh, in, in some theater, people demanded their money back when they found out there was no sound. Oh, uh, well, you know, English. <laughs> um, you know, because they, 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 they have that uh, that sharp wit, you know, that sharp verbal kind of Monte Python-esque kind of um, I have so many questions from the chat room that I want to ask, and, and we've got literally about 10, you know, maybe 15 minutes left in the hour. So, Joe, I'd, I'd love to ask you, and I, and I hate to do this to you on the air, but would you come back sometime when it's convenient for you and, and continue our conversation? Sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. I appreciate that. That would be wonderful. Um, but I do. I have a lot of questions that I do want to Somebody asked, how did you, how did you end up making a, a cameo in The Silence of the Hams? <laughs> Boy, that's a that's a question I don't get often. <laughs> um, uh, Julie Corman, uh, Roger's uh, better half, is um, was uh, the producer of that picture, and uh, uh, Ezio Greggio is an Italian comedian who uh, starred in and directed this uh, film, which has a lot of interesting actors in it, not not including me. Um, and John Carpenter and I have a scene together which, frankly, made very little sense to me when we shot it. And then when I saw the movie, it made even less sense. But <laughs> I, I am indeed in the movie. <laughs> and, um, and someone else asked, how many segments did you direct for Amazon Women on the Moon? 
Uh, let's see. Amazon went on the moon. I did. Um, I wanted to do the Invisible Man, but unfortunately, uh, that was already taken, so I couldn't do that one. Uh, I did Roast Your Loved One with Steve Allen, uh, which was fun. And then I did uh, Hair Looming with Joe Pantoliano. And I did um, Bull Blank or Not uh, with Henry Silva playing. It's a really obscure joke because uh, Jack Palance was the host of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Uh-huh. And, and so this was a joke that, that, that Henry Silva is kind of like a Jack Palance kind of guy. Anyway, I like the joke. I don't know if anybody else got it. Uh, that's the one where the, the uh, where Jack the Ripper turns out to be the Loch Ness monster. Um, now, it, Henry, so is he still with us? Henry is still with us. Yes, uh, and I've always he's been like, amazed that nobody has gone to him for for um, DVD, uh, you know, uh, narrations and stuff because. Uh, I, I haven't seen him in years, but last time I saw him, I, I tried to get him a part in Looney Tunes, and he had an accident and fell down or something, and he couldn't do it. But uh, he was he was fine then, and he's a really very very interesting guy. Is he like ninety years old? Or? He must be. He must be ninety. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, all those guys. Wow. I, mean, I, t- I tried to get I tried to get George Kennedy for Looney Tunes, and he had a back operation. I tried to get Rod Taylor, and he had another picture that he had to do. I mean, I just. <laughs> Always, always these people that you try to get and you almost get, but then you don't get. Oh yeah, that must, that must be something. Now, if somebody went back to the uh, Spielberg and Gremlins. Um, says, let's talk a little bit about how involved Spielberg. Oh, they want to know how involved Spielberg was in Gremlins. And well, he was very involved. I mean, he he you know because he was the head of the company. It was the it was their first picture. Uh, and so everything had to fil- be filtered through him, including the designs and the colors and the cast and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he was very, very interested in, in the picture. It, it, he had to leave when we started shooting because he was going to. He did the second Indiana Jones movie, so we we had a lot of we really didn't have a lot of adult supervision <laughs> while we were actually making the movie. But uh, in setting it up, I mean, he was he was there all the time, and one of the biggest challenges was trying to get him to approve uh, the design for Gizmo. Because uh, uh, he kept uh, changing his mind, and we had all these all these different uh, dolls made, and we had one that looked like Peter Ustinov with hair. I remember it was strange, <laughs> and 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 we couldn't get Stephen to sign off on um, on the color of, of Gizmo, so we decided to do a sort of an underhanded thing. He had these he had, uh, he had this cocker spaniel, and uh, we decided to make Gizmo as much like Stephen's cocker spaniel as possible, including what color he was. And sure enough, he approved it. <laughs> but then he threw us a curve because in the original script, Gizmo turns into Stripe, the bad gremlin, after about two reels, and that was the technology that we had at the time. And we we figured we could get by for two reels with this this sort of hand puppet full of gears. And uh, then Stephen had this what turned out, unfortunately, to be a brilliant idea. But uh, he, just like a couple of weeks before shooting, he said, "You know what should happen? Gizmo shouldn't. Uh, he he should stay. He shouldn't turn into Stripe." He should stay through the whole picture and be the hero's pal. And it was like, well, what are we gonna? How are we gonna do that? I mean, we had built this little <laughs> bucket of bolts. It was, you know, he was he was good for two reels, and that was about it. So we scrambled and we built a giant head so we could do close-ups. And we figured out that the 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 hero could carry him around in the backpack so he wouldn't have to walk because he didn't know how to do that. And uh, so we 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 basically rose to the challenge. And and he was right. It was the I, it was I think the big difference between that movie being just another horror picture with little monsters in it and uh, a movie that, that had staying power because they, uh, Gizmo was such a popular character. Wow. And you're a mind reader, too, because that actually was the very next question that I had to ask somebody who wanted to know about the ending and, and if 
how that came about. So well, the ending, uh, the ending was uh, actually I think the ending that's in the movie was kind of improv. Uh, the scene where the, the key Luke character comes back, we sort of made that made a lot of that up, and it was kind of embarrassing because that was the day Chris Columbus brought his parents to the set, and here were these people saying all this dialogue that he hadn't written. Uh, kind of bad. I felt bad about that. Um, but there was another ending, which I uh, a, a website. Uh, I think I think it's called Bloody Disgusting. Um, I just happened to encounter it the other day, and they had had uh, I, what what they said was the seventh draft of the script. And in that version of the script, at the end of the movie, Gizmo dies and turns into a butterfly and flies away. And I have to tell you, I had no memory of that uh, until I until I looked at this page that they re- reproduced on, online. And I still can't imagine at what point we were ever thinking of doing that because I j- it just doesn't compute for me. But there it was in print. Wow. Now, uh, another person from the chat room asks, how did it feel to be directed by someone else while acting as the director in an episode of Erie, Indiana? Well, it was very odd because I was supposed to direct that episode of Erie, Indiana, which is called Reality Takes a Holiday, and it has a really great premise, which is that the lead kid wakes up to discover that he is actually a character in a TV show, uh, and and, he's in, and the, the, his parents are actors, and uh, every, every, the artifice of the program uh, is is shown completely. And and what was interesting is NBC had wanted to replace this actor, uh, Omri Katz with uh, an older kid, which is the way things usually go, and they oh, won't make the kid older. Um, and so there was some just some talk about writing him out of the series and replacing him with this character called Dash X, who had been introduced in the in the early in the second part of the season. And so we put that into the story, and that, that became part of the plot, that he's that they're actually trying to get rid of him and put this other actor in his place. And so I, uh, but I couldn't do it, and so Ken Quapas came in. To do it because I was I think I was working on matinee or something and and um, and so I they I said well you want to play yourself so I said okay I'll I'll play myself so um, even after a lifetime of rehearsal I wasn't good at playing myself I am just not a very good actor <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that's funny um, there's a lot more questions and we we don't have a whole lot of time. I'm, I'm I'm happy that you have said that at some point in the future you'll come back. We'll let the listeners know when that's going to be, so it'll be to not be a to be an S. But I, I have two questions I want to ask of you too, and one is uh, about splatter and web series. And what do you think the future holds for, you know, web series? And uh, and and how did you feel about doing one? Well, I, splatter was just sort of a fun. The gig for me because Roger Corman asked me to do it. I hadn't worked for him in years and years and years, and uh, so it, it, the gimmick was that they the audience gets to choose who dies in, uh, in the next episode of of, the, of this sort of haunted house zombie mm-hmm. thing, and um, and it was made really really quickly and uh, really cheaply, and um, and it was a return to my roots. I mean, basically, it was like go 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 shoot shoot shoot. You know, we did it like we did it in there's only three episodes, but we had to shoot ten because you have to be able to choose the permutations. There's five characters, so all these characters have different stories. That It's like that play Tomorrow where the people walk into different rooms and see different parts of the story. We had to shoot them all. Uh, and it was fun. I mean, it didn't set the world on fire, but it was, it was, a, it was a fun thing to do. Um, it is obviously part of the future. It is not the future, but it's part of the future because the problem with letting the audience choose their own ending is that it's very hard to write a story that has a point. 
and, sure. and so that's probably going to always be kind of a diversion thing. It's not going to be like a main uh, kind of entertainment. But uh, but I do think that that things are changing at a speed that is just remarkable, and and that movies as we knew them are a 20th century art form, and the 20th century is now over. And I think those that part of the art form is also permutating into something else. And and the interesting thing is nobody knows quite what that is. And they don't know how it's going to be delivered and what you're going to watch it on and who you're going to watch it with. Um, I think there will always be movie theaters because people need, kids particularly need a place to get away from their parents. But um, for the most part, I, I think that the whole exhibition thing and the, the delivery to television and networks and all that kind of stuff... That's, that's all gonna. That's all gonna at least change as much as radio did, because you know radio was the dominant force. And there were networks and all that kind of thing, and then eventually that all sort of faded away. And radio is now basically right-wing talk shows. Um, and who <laughs> yeah, knows what? Who knows what the what the future is going to bring? But I, I think that's the interesting thing is that nobody does know, and it's all going so fast. And the whole, the, the copyright issues and the you know the SOPA and the internet and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just it's moving as as I think Dan O'Hurley says in Failsafe, that it's it's moving faster than than the, than the human mind can comprehend, and uh, we really don't know where we're going. That, that's pretty amazing, uh, and and you know, optimistically so, and and with a, maybe a dash of pessimism, just you know, seeing the old stuff leave. I mean, it's it's uh, well, it's gonna, it's just gonna get uh, it's. There's always going to be a place for this stuff, but it's not going to be. It's it's the the the, the pop culture only exists in the minds of people, and uh, as right. as people pass away, who you know remember the old days and the old stuff, uh, it'll become more rarefied to be able to go back in and you know it's sort of like the way people sh- study Shakespeare. It's you know you have Shakespeare scholars, and then you have people who are just sort of vaguely familiar with with Shakespeare, but it's Shakespeare endures because it's great stuff. And the great stuff will endure, and uh, and a lot of the junky stuff will endure because we like that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Now, uh, be- before I ask my my next question, I want to uh, give you the pitch from uh, Severin in the chat room who who wants to see another Gremlins movie, and his idea or the idea is um, it's about Gremlins sabotaging the production of Gremlins 3D. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful idea, and uh, he should run with it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. And, and and tormenting the director and heckling the actors is added. Um, what's next for you? What are, what are you doing and 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 what are you up to that you can share with us? And there's well, it's the sharing part that's difficult because uh, in, in today's in today's world you have you, j- you have to juggle a lot of projects because you know you never know which one of them is going to happen, if any. And it's now all about funding. Um, if you find a script that you like and somebody sends it to you and says, well, what do you think? And you say, gee, I, yeah, I like this. And they say, great, we'll use your name, we'll go out and we'll raise some money. Uh, and that's not the way it used to be. Uh, was mm-hmm. There would be a studio behind it, and they would already have decided to make the movie, and if you wanted to make it, then, then you had a job. So now I have probably five projects floating around town uh, with my name attached, and um, maybe one of them will happen, and, and maybe one of them won't, and maybe the phone will ring tomorrow, and somebody will say, would you come in and do this, and it will actually be funded. Um, you don't know. Plus, I've got my own projects I'm trying to get made, so I'm trying to look for funding for those things. And it becomes uh, it takes a lot, it takes up a lot of your time, frankly. 
But as far as me being able to say exactly what's my next project, I honestly uh, can't tell you. I don't know, but I hope it's soon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so do we. And so does everyone in the chat room. And with that, Joe, I just got to say, this has been a, a wonderful time spent with you, and uh, I have enjoyed it so much. And, and uh, people have certainly enjoyed it in the chat room and have, have been uh, free, lavishing comments about how much they enjoy you and your movies and and uh, and all of your efforts from the past and, and, and best wishes for the future. So thank you so much for being here today and spending this time with us. Thank you, Rex. I appreciate it. I will call you in just a couple minutes, just to, to touch base, and then, and uh, uh, but we wish you well and, and have a fabulous day. Thanks. Thank you. All right, that is Mr. Joe Dante, and a fascinating guest indeed he is. And I want to thank you. I want to thank him, and I want to thank you, the the listeners and the readers of Movie Beat. Please do leave comments before you go. Leave them right there at the player, and do share this interview this discussion with Joe far and wide. You can post it. The one thing we do is we give you these interviews absolutely free and ask you then to uh, help spread the word and help leave comments because that increases our internet visibility and makes the show more available to people who may not know of it otherwise. Remember, this is the Nuts and Bolts How-To program of professional filmmakers who are working each and every day in this business, who have a track record, share their expertise, their experiences, their know-how, their how-to, what to do, what not to do, nuts and bolts, secrets, suggestions, golden nuggets uh, with all of us. And uh, and all we ask in exchange is that you share it and that you leave comments. And you can do that on Twitter and Facebook. Again, trailersfromhell.com. Trailersfromhell.com is Joe's website uh, for... Um, uh, the Trailers from Hell. It's a great educational, entertaining website with with uh, numerous uh, uh, prominent film people um, discussing trailers and commenting. You've you got to go check it out if you don't already. Joe's also on Facebook. There's a Trailers from Hell like page on Facebook uh, and a Trailers from Hell on Twitter. I posted that in the chat room. Let me see if I can go back and retrieve some of that. Um, I believe Trailers from Hell, in it's a Facebook page. Go look that up. Uh, Joe Dante also has a page. and um, But you can go to Trailers from Hell, and it looks like Hell has only one L. Um, but find them on uh, Twitter. All right, everybody, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Rex Sykes Movie BT. It's Rex Sykes Movie BT. That last word is abbreviated. I also have a friends page on Facebook, Rex Sykes Movie Beat. Please go there and like it and spread that around as well. And uh, and as well as a YouTube channel of the same name, Rex Sykes Movie Beat. So um, my upcoming guest is Peter Marshall. Come back and listen to him. We're doing the director series right now. It's at 16 parts. We've talked about breakdown scripts. We've talked about shooting. We've talked about working with actors and scene analysis and the whole thing. So come back and listen to that. Guests coming up in March. Remember, we got a two-week hiatus. So go back and uh, listen to shows that you have um, may not have heard yet. Go go to the archives at the interviews blog, and that's the best way to do it. Scroll through my guests and click on their name. And what you find is there will be links to their interviews. Some have one, some have two, some have three, some have six, some have 16. All right, But they're all archived there. If it says upcoming, obviously we haven't done it yet. But uh, you'll know who's upcoming as well. All right, everybody, have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects, and until we meet the next time, that is a wrap.